Um, we're going to look at Numbers 28 today. Uh, just bear with me. I'm a little frazzled. I spent all night in the emergency uh, vet last night. My, I was walking my two dogs, and a lady was walking her dog and a, her friend's dog, and her friend's dog mauled both of my two dogs. Uh, I got bit in the process, too. So um, there were about a couple hours of surgery and about $1,500 of vet bills. But um, my, the, the older, my, my dogs are two little strays that I took in. Um, one's doing okay. He's kind of up and out this morning. They both have to have drainage tubes put in. And um, the other one is not doing well. He's pretty banged up. He was grabbed aside and shaking around like a chew toy. Um, so that's always crappy <laughs> when you have to go through it. And I have a friend watching him right now, but I got to fly right back home. Uh, when I get done with this and check on him and make sure because yeah, he's in a lot of pain and uh, but um, you know can't can't miss this study each week so but anyway that was I was I was actually reading commentaries at the vet's office last night <laughs> prepping for today so um, <clears throat> it may not be as smooth as usual the prep time was not as intense, uh, well, it was intense, just <laughs> wasn't as intensely focused on this text. So if you want to pray for my little guys, Ripken and Ransom, uh, they could definitely use your prayers, and I'm a softie when it comes to animals, so I hate seeing it. I, I didn't feel bad for the, I mean, I felt bad for the dog that did it, because it was a rescue from the Humane Society, and who knows what idiot raised that thing to attack, and, you know, I don't know. There are no bad dogs, but there are some pretty bad owners. <laughs> That's the rule. So, and this one, we don't know who the owner was before the woman that had him took him in. So, but I did talk to the owner, her friend. She's going to help what she can with payment. I don't know if she's too well off either. So God, God will take care of it. Um, but anyway, we're going to jump into Numbers 28 and Numbers 27. So remember the flow of the book because this is where people start fading because it goes back to some regulations after a lot of narrative. We've had the census, chapter 26, the new generation of the new army. So God's reconstituted the second generation of His faithful army. They're going to go into the land. That was the focus of the last chapter then. When they divide the land, how's it going to happen? And in this case of one of the tribes and the clans is going to be forgotten because the, son, the father died with no heir. and just had daughters. So they looked at the case of uh, Tzalafahad's daughters and how God said, uh, yeah, the daughters absolutely are going to inherit in the name of their father to keep the family name going. And we talked about why that was so important. And then also uh, the, the flip side is who's going to enter the land, who's not going to enter the land. And God reinstated to Moses, you're not going to enter the land. You rebelled against me. You're my leader and you rebelled. Uh, and it may seem slight in the eyes of compared to the rebellion of the people, but Higher leadership, higher stakes. And God does punish more severely those who have a higher degree of authority. Uh, and that's something that should give everybody pause, especially those of us that teach or preach for a living. Um, that's why I get really fearful when I see TV preachers abusing Scripture. Because I'm just like, you, good grief. Like, it's going to be severe. And it, preachers in general, I mean, you just see the ones on TV, but... You know, even little small churches, the person who's up front, you know, when you're taking on authority and you misspeak, you're misrepresenting God Almighty to people. And it's, it's like you're, you're the shepherd and you're abusing the sheep. And they're not your sheep, they're God's sheep. And God will 
judge that shepherd in the end. So it's really something that should cause healthy fear and trembling, and it should prevent people from wanting to be teachers to a certain degree. That's what Jesus' own half-brother said. You know, James chapter 3, 1, not all of you should try to be teachers. Those of, you, those of us who teach are held to a higher standard. And so we see that in Moses, and you see it in the ministries of people down throughout the ages. Um, so then, this chapter then is going to continue on of, so once you're in the land, because remember God's, the, Israel's camped on the plains of Moab. They're overlooking the promised land. Moses actually got to travel 10 miles to a vantage point where he could see the land uh, and, and actually see where his people were going to go. And they're going to enter. They're going to go in. They're going to uh, receive the land. And they're going to be the next stewards that enter into it. And as a result, when they get in the land, God's emphasizing, now remember, He's already said, the stuff in this chapter has already been said in Leviticus 23 to the parents' generation. But He's going to systematize and expand it, and He's going to kind of state it in an overall year pattern in this chapter, in the next chapter, so that the people can see this is what your, this is what your daily life and your month, weekly life and your monthly life and your yearly life is going to look like in the land. That's the key to all of this, in the land. So he's giving them their, their identity and their calling. And it's all going to be centered around this concept of the sacrifice. And th- because there's so many different sacrificial legislation sections in the Torah, people just kind of, they blur together. You know, we want a bullet point, we want a chart, we want a list. And what we, we don't get that. Um, the priests knew it, and the, they taught the people, and then it was written down and preserved for us in a narrative format, not in a chart. And so what we get from God when we're reading it is He didn't give us this information so we can plot it all out, make a nice chart, and then follow the steps. Because He leaves out steps in some lists, and He talks about it in others. Like in this list, it's going to talk about the festival of uh, the, of trumpets in the next chapter. That's not in the previous list. They didn't mention that in Leviticus 23. And in Leviticus 23, we mentioned something uh, that this list doesn't mention in terms of how it actually should work. So the lists are kind of comprehensive, but neither, none of them are exhaustive. And it's like that in Scripture. We have to be careful of trying to systematize what God has given as a story. And you see this a lot in, you see it in different contexts, particularly coming from a more charismatic background. I would see this in gifts of the Spirit tests or inventories. Like people are like gifts of the Spirit become the gifts of the Spirit and people chart them all out and they're like, here are the gifts. And they pull it from three different lists that Paul gave. But when you look at those lists, none of those lists have all of the gifts on them and none of the lists are the same. And so what that tells you is Paul was not giving an exhaustive list so that people could take an inventory and then give quizzes to people to find out their spiritual He was saying, here are the kinds of gifts that the Spirit gives. And he's given representative examples, not definitive examples. And you can see that because none of the lists match exactly. And so it's like, but, but we don't want that. We want, just give me the facts. Give me the bullet points. Give me the cliff notes. I, I, you know, I don't want to kind of enter into all that, let the Bible scholars figure that out, let the preacher figure that out, just give me my 10-minute devotional, my checklist that I can see which gifts I have. If you're not in, if you go to a secessionist church, you know, if you're 
super reformed or Southern Baptist and you're just like, we don't believe in any of it, then this all sounds completely foreign and you don't even know what I'm talking about probably. <laughs> if you go to Assemblies of God or something like that, you're like, yep, I know that test. I've, I probably took it in college to see what my gifts were. I have the gift of you know, administration, the gift of wisdom, the gift of healing, tongues, interpretation of tongues, you know, all that kind of stuff. Well, the only reason I mention that is because it's a good New Testament example of what people do with the Old Testament and, and the, the laws is they try to chart them out, systematize them, just give me the outline, and, and then they can make sense of it. As we see, God doesn't do that. He gives His people examples at the time. The law He gave the previous generation was incomplete. We know it was incomplete because He had to specifically give a new law last chapter about daughters inheriting. The situation changed. God changed with His people at that time. Right? So there's, you see that God's relationship is dynamic. Now what, that not, what that's not saying, because I come from a mainline denomination now that says, yeah, of course, God changes with His people and we need to change with the times and so we need to start allowing this and this and that. Slow your roll. That's not what God's saying in this. What it's saying is God, in how He deals with His people, he allows situations to mitigate how his moral law, his, his spirit of his desire for his people, his promised plan, how that is enacted in their settings. And those settings differ from place to place, time to time. What we're getting in Torah is how Israel was going to live as his covenant vassal. He's the king, the suzerain, they're the vassal, the subject. They're going to live as his vassal in that land with that symptom central sanctuary, the tabernacle, which will become the temple, for the duration of that covenant. But that covenant's not going to be eternal. It's not going to be forever. It's going to be for a long time. But then there's going to be a new covenant that's going to come after it. And it, it, it tells us all this. Deuteronomy tells us this at the end of the book, and then the prophets tell us this specifically, Jeremiah and Ezekiel. So what we're reading in Israel's calendar year, sacrificial system, ritualistic behaviors. We're reading how they were to live in relationship with Yahweh as their great king in ways that were similar to how other countries lived in relationship to their gods or their human great kings. So there's elements that relate to those ancient Near East concepts in Israel's Torah, but there are also foundational elements that go far beyond those other concepts. So God's speaking the language of His people's cultures that they're coming out of. He's using the worldview that they belong to in many ways. He's bridging the gap to give them His law, but His law is built upon His very nature, which is pointing them towards, calling them towards, foreshadowing the final destination. What He really wants, which is new creation, new heavens, new earth. The stuff, all the stuff that Jesus is going to bring when He returns. That's what everything in the Old Testament is pointing forward to and looking forward to that day. The prophets hint at it. Moses hints at it in Deuteronomy. <clears throat> the prophets hint at it over and over in Israel's history. But the problem is that Israel in their day was not living the way that God told them, this is how you need to live at this time. Because you're my light to the nations. You are how the nations are going to look. They're going to see your relationship with me, your devotion to me, my devotion to you, this relationship we have, and they're going to be drawn to me through that. That was his plan. That was his plan. Closest it ever comes to happening is during Solomon's reign. 
when you have the Queen of Sheba and you have the King of Tyre and you have these other people coming to Israel, bringing gifts, wanting to know about the wisdom of this king and the God he serves. And then it takes a nosedive because what does Solomon immediately do? He starts intermarrying, making alliances, and not just intermarrying, but letting his wives and concubines bring their gods in to Israel. And that is the death stroke. And Israel within one lifetime is shattered and divided, civil war, and it never recovers. It partially recovers a little bit, but even into the time of Jesus, Israel is largely in exile, even though they're in their own land, because Rome is ruling over them. And so these celebrations in this chapter, these, this calendar year in this chapter represents the ideal that God had called them to keep. But it was based not upon a, a, a mechanistic view of if we do this celebration, God will bless us. It's not that. It's God has blessed us, so we do this celebration to remember that and to look to the future and to keep the relationship going. Problem with Israel was they devolved into exactly what American Christianity devolves into. Civil, therapeutic deism. The idea is if we just corporately give God a nod, you know, we'll put him on our money, we'll put a Ten Commandments statue at a courthouse, we'll make a big deal about praying in schools or whatever. Show these outward signs of civil religion, let that be what we care about, and then God will bless us as a nation and things will be good. But in general, in the day-to-day life, he's kind of uninvolved. And that, that, that's an American civil religion. I mean, that's just what we're surrounded by. That's what every Judeo-Christian culture slides towards as a culture. And it doesn't mean everybody, it doesn't mean we all do that individually or churches individually, but, but that, is, that is the drift that culture pulls us towards is give us the outward signs of God and that's what will determine. You know, we, politics is the same way. Both parties are guilty. They both try to uh, get the Christian vote. You know, one goes to certain types of churches, the other goes to other types of churches, both claiming that they're the godly candidate, that God really cares about the issues they care about. And if you just vote for them, then you'll be voting for God. And if you oppose them, you're opposing God's choice. And it's always interesting because the other party doesn't recognize that theological truth when the other party's in power. But when their party gets in power, all of a sudden they're God's candidate and you better back them. But then flip the script and, oh, they're, they're the Antichrist and we need to oppose them. And it's just, from a biblical perspective, I just see God going, you guys haven't gotten it since Israel. Because Israel did the same thing. These, these festivals, when you read the prophets, you're going to read denunciations of these very festivals. The prophets are going to say things like, I despise your feasts. I hate your new moon celebrations. Take the noise of your trumpets away from me. The people were keeping the civil religion. They were doing the outward things. But what was Amos and others saying? They were saying, yeah, but your lives are garbage and your country as a whole is crushing the poor, the widow, the orphan, the foreigner, the needy. You're, you're living in blatant idolatry, but being sure to keep these festivals just to stay on God's good side. And God's like, it don't work that way. And so he sends prophet after prophet after prophet to tell them that. I don't work that way. I don't want your songs. I don't want your assemblies. I don't want your civil religion. I want your heart. And I want your lives to be changed. What does he require of you, O man, but to do justice, to love mercy, 
to walk humbly with your God. How one of the prophets puts it. So, all throughout this section then, what we're reading, we're not reading things, these, these celebrations that are going to be, that God doesn't care about. He cares about them. But because He cares about them, He cares that they be done from the heart. Not from compulsion. This is, we talked a few weeks ago. I'm, I'm amazed how relevant even passages that seemingly have nothing to do. The whole cultural brouhaha. It continues on. Stand, kneel, say the pledge, dishonor the flag. All these arguments on both sides. And we talked, if you missed the podcast, it was a week, two weeks ago. Top on, check it out. Um, kind of a, a scripture gives a warning to both sides in that kind of debate. But it, you listen to the themes and you hear the same themes over and over again. It's important what you outwardly show, whether it's a protest or whether it's a patriotic display. That's what's important. I don't think it's really important to God if your life's not living in accordance with what God wants. You know, so standing, kneeling, walking out of a football game, of all the things in the world, I just look at God and I just feel like God's going, that is so low on my checklist of things to care about. <laughs> I'm saying that God prioritizes the major, the weightier, the heavier over the lighter. I, we should prioritize it. What did Jesus say? The weightier things of the law you're ignoring. You're keeping the little things. You tithe your mint and your dill and your spices, but you ignore the heavier things. Exactly. So yeah, there, now, does God not involved in anything? No. It's not that. It's not an issue of sovereignty. It's an issue of priority. And it's an issue of what our energy is geared towards. And what we see, God, Israel keeping the feasts, Israel showing their displays of national who they were as a people, because that's this is their national identity. God will look at it and he'll go, I don't give a rip about that. Because the deeper thing is your lives aren't matching what all of this should point to anyway. And that's the challenge that God gives his people when we start to elevate, when we something can come from the outside from inside out or from the outside in. We can, we can live our life based on external things that we're keeping, that we're doing, that we're looking at, we're not looking at, that we're saying, that we're not saying. Um, and, and that can be what forms who we are on the inside. Or we can be transformed and walking with God and have the Holy Spirit indwelling us and that flows out of our mouths and into our lives and into our actions and into our behavior. And Jesus said, it's not the things from out that defile it's what comes from within this is what makes a person unclean and, and so Jesus flipped the script completely and said start on the inside and work out from there in terms of where you are with things yeah obedience yes obedience is always the heart and that's what, see, you can't bifurcate uh, obedience of the outer with rebellion of the inner. Because man looks on the outward appearance, God looks on the heart. And what does the psalmist say? You know, search me, Lord, examine my heart. Who can tell their hidden sins? You know, you are the one, Psalm 19. Um, that's what 
from the beginning it's always been that, is the obedience needs to flow from the relationship with God. And the blessings are, yes, the blessings are, and in Israel, and what we have to do is pay attention to the blessings in their context. The blessings are, Israel, if you as a people keep my covenant, I will take care of the things that, all, that, that, that the kings in the rest of the countries are supposed to take care of. That's what suzerain vassal treaties were. You serve me as your king, I'll fight your enemies, I'll provide food when there's a shortage, if the, if the weather, the, the fertility is not there, the season, the crops fail, I'll take care of that. If you need infrastructure, if you need buildings, if you need security, if you need walls, all that kind of stuff, I'll be that. That's what you did when you entered a suzerain vassal treaty. So Deuteronomy, the entire book is structured as a suzerain vassal treaty from the ancient Near East second millennium. You can chart it all out, and we'll do that next year as we go through Deuteronomy. But the promise that God's giving is a national promise of Israel to be their king and to do the things that, that people expected of their protector kings in the ancient world, but to do it on a much larger and much deeper scale for them. He was going to be their true king. And so what we have to do is go, that's the heart of what God's doing, but be careful because our tendency then when we read these things is to go, okay, so now let's look for another country today or another people group today and have them do that and they'll get God's same blessing. No, this was God's covenant with Israel only. And so we have to be careful of extrapolating that and, and, and doing what people in history have done and just like, for instance, replacing Israel with America. And say, if we as a nation, you know, how many leaders have you heard invoke Second Chronicles, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, da, 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 as a national blessing of the country? Well, nobody except Israel can ever do that. Because Israel were the only people who were called by his name and the place where he put his name. Believers. Believers. Yeah. Yes. It affects believers. Believers, yes. The equivalent to the New Testament is believers, not secular country. We should do that to show God's relationship to the people who are looking. But if we're trying to be good Christians so that our secular country can get a blessing, I think we've lost the script. Because God is at work in every nation now. And all of the, the, the blessings that God's doing, the, the, the Old Testament blessings of a suzerain king can't just be grabbed and grafted onto a New Testament era country with arbitrary borders. Because they're people of God in every country in the world. And so, how that works out, you know, how God, how God governs countries today, that's stuff where Christians are free to talk about and disagree and say, how does that play out? As long as we're keeping in mind the concept that all of this Torah was to God's covenant people, and the, the analog to that today, the counterpart to that today, is God's new covenant people. And the difference is in here, it was largely geographically and ethnically based. Today, it's worldwide and not ethnically based. Neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male or female, barbarian or Scythian. So the promises and all of the stuff get expanded. They get ramped up. 
what does that mean for us in the world? Well, the script is the same. Israel was to be salt and light. I mean, what is a city set on a hill? Jerusalem is the city set on a hill. They were to be the light to the Gentiles. Isaiah spends chapters talking about this. So their calling is still our calling today. Jesus sends out His people, be light to the Gentiles. Oh, by the way, you guys are Gentiles, so you're going to be bringing in more of your people, more of your Gentiles. More wild olive branches are going to be grafted into this cultivated tree called me. I'm the vine, you're the branches. So how this plays out is going to vary. And there's going to be you know, differences and disagreements, and, how it, and especially how it shakes out in the political realm. The point that I want to emphasize through this study as a whole, not just this week, but a study is that those, how it plays out in our secular landscape is the secondary issue. The primary issue is how as we individually, but also as the collective people of God, how are we being faithful to God and being faithful to the covenant? And how can we in our context be faithful to Him and faithful to the covenant? Yeah, go into all the world as you're going. Teach them, baptize, teach them to obey all that I've commanded you. I mean, Jesus gives the disciples the same mission that God gave Israel, except God gave it in a centralized area. Go to the land and be the light and the salt there. And Jesus flips it, reverses it, and sends it out to the world. Go into the world. So in the New Testament, the, the land in Israel becomes the world. It's not replaced or negated or done away with. It's like it's expanded because from the whole, from the beginning, God's goal again was to reach the world. In your offspring, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Genesis 15, Genesis 12. That's the plan of the Bible. So what we're, we're in the successive stages of that plan. Right now in Numbers, we're in the plan of, so as part of this promise, you, family of Israel, tribes of Israel, clans of the fathers, you plus the mixed multitude that came out of Egypt with you, plus those who come into you and live among you as the sojourner and the, um, the, the, the ger, I don't know the English translation, um, alien, immigrant, ex, whatever. You're going to be my people in this land. Centuries later, that land is going to become the focal point of world empires. And at a perfect time, as Paul says, at this time, this kairos time, this anointed time, at that time then, I'm going to step down into that land just at a moment when, because of historical influence, the whole world at that time is accessible through Romans roads, through Greek language, through the travel and the commerce. That's the time I'm going to enter into the land. And then this thing's going to go worldwide, which it did. Which I mean, we're a continent away today, 2,000 years, different cultures, different languages. But it's the continuation of that plan. So it's, it's, I guess to emphasize, the main thing to emphasize is that when we look at Israel, two, two, thing, two errors to avoid. As long as you avoid each of these errors and you land somewhere in the middle, have fun disagreeing and, and arguing it out and ironing it out and seeing where you land. Just avoid these two errors. The one error is to look at this and go, oh, that's Old Testament. This doesn't matter anymore. Let me flip to the New Testament. That's where I find out who God really is. 
And then if I read the Old Testament, I'm going to filter it through my New Testament lens, my New Testament understanding. That's a wrong approach. That's a backwards approach. The, the approach is, okay, first let me find out what God did. Then let me find out what He did in the New Testament. Then let me go back and relook at what He did in light of the New Testament and then see where I can fit in today and how that plays out. So the one error is, it's Old Testament, don't care. The other error is, it's Old Testament, so what we need to do is find a way to keep these laws today. So I'm going to run for office on a plan of instituting Sabbath, mandatory, whatever. Or, you know, the laws I like, I'm going to take. The ones we can't keep, eh. That is when you get into this idea of like gnomism, of trying to reinstate the Mosaic Covenant law today. And the author of Hebrews has a lot to say about that. Is no, no, you can't go back to the Old Covenant because it's, it's completed, it's finished. So there's no, you don't go back to it. The thing that saves you is the thing that the Old Covenant was given to bring about, and that is the Messiah. He fulfills the land. He fulfills the holidays. He fulfills the sacrifices. He fulfills the purity rituals. He fulfills it all. He is who we focus on. And we read the Old Testament to know about Him, but not to keep the Old Testament, if that makes sense. Um, so as, as Christians, one of the things that we'll have to end it here, and we'll, we'll get into the actual um, rituals next week, the calendar, because next week the, we'll just lay the whole calendar out. But one of the things that I tell people is as Christians, this is one of the eyebrow raisers, we don't keep the Ten Commandments. What we do is we follow the law of Christ, which just so happens to line up with at least nine of the Ten Commandments because it reflects God's moral law. The one about Sabbath observance, even in the first century, there was already like, that was the shadow, this is the reality, one man considers every day holy, one man considers one day holy, make up your own mind just as long as you're content in the Lord and you don't give each other grief over it, do your thing. <laughs> it's kind of how Paul ends it with Corinthians and the Romans. But, but so, so that's, when we look at the Ten Commandments then, what do we see? Laws that we have to keep in order to get to heaven? No, that's folk religion. What we see is, this is the laws that God gave His people that He then fleshed out in the Torah that they were to live by in the ancient Near East to show the world who God was. Jesus comes, takes those laws, written on stone tablets, writes them on our hearts. So is there a lot of overlap? Yeah. Is it mostly overlap? Yeah. Is it entirely one-to-one? -one? No. Because the New Covenant expands everything. It is a lot simpler for people that don't mind not having a list. <laughs> for type A people, it's not simpler because they want a list. They want, just give me the, just tell me what to do. That's why the Ten Commandments are so appealing. Well, here you go. Just don't do these ten things. But what Paul and what Jesus and what the apostles give us in the New Testament is, how about a relationship? And how about listening to the Spirit? And how about being among each other and helping each other figure out what I'm saying to my people as a whole? That's a lot trickier. But it involves doing what we're doing. Sitting around a table, sharing a meal, reading and discussing God's Word, talking about it, questions, responses, much more. And as we'll see next week, it'll be a daily thing, it'll be a weekly thing, it'll be a monthly thing, and it'll be a yearly thing for Israel. 
Um, but we're out of time now. So, so today was just the preface to this Israel's calendar, and, and, we'll, and we'll look at it next week. Um, but thank you for coming. Thank you for your time. There's uh, some food left over, and let me know if you have questions about the trip to Israel. I'd be happy to give you a flyer, and uh, we'd love to have you. So have a great week, everybody. Thank you.